And welcome back, folks, to the exit interview. I am Kevin Adams, and I am here with my wonderful host, Asian Lions. How's everybody doing? I hope everybody is great. We are here with part two of our interview with Dr. William Smith. Uh, we had to keep this conversation going. We had to continue it so much that we didn't get to. Um, so we are going to jump right into this uh, part two interview uh, for y'all in a second. But just remember to follow us at Two Dope Teachers on Instagram and Twitter. And you can like us on Facebook dot com slash Two Dope Teachers and a mic. Our email address is Two Dope Teachers at gmail.com. And you can listen to us on Apple and Spotify podcast or at mrmunoz.org. If you listen to us on Apple, please give us a five-star review. It really does help others find us and get our content out to the people. And I'm sorry to crash in here as the awkward producer. Uh, if you go to the website and it's not working, it's because I'm learning how to be a webmaster and it might be a little bit, but don't get mad at us. Just go to the feed. It's all there. Yeah. Okay. Gerardo, producer. Yes. Producer voice. Pro producer so, voice. Yes. The, the voice of the gods coming down. Go uh, to the yeah. feed, find it there. You will get it. <laughs> all right. Uh, we're leaving that in by the way. Okay. That's Bye. it. <laughs> Finally, if you want to support us financially, because you know it is all about the Benjamins. Mm -hmm. Not really, but we need those to keep it moving. Podcasting ain't free. Head over to patreon.com slash two dope teachers where you can become a patron for just $5 a month. And you get a sticker, an amazing sticker by Sham if you become a patron. And uh, who knows what's to come for the rest of you as you become patrons. Yeah, so, maybe uh, a, a fire nickname. That's, that's what, it. Uh-huh. Oh, a Wu-Tang teacher name. Oh, nice. A nice. Wu-Tang teacher name. <laughs> right? Right? Yes, from the Wu-Yu. We have to go back. From the Wu-Yu. Oh, <laughs> listen Ooh. to Asia. Asia got bars. Yeah. Go in. All right. Well, speaking of bars, let's get back to these golden bars of wisdom. Mm-hmm coming from Dr. William Smith. Yeah, so Dr. Smith, last time you were here, we talked about um, educators and this need for us to heal, specifically Black educators, and what we need to do to make sure that we're in the healing spaces in our homes, um, and that we're making sure that we're eating right, and we're reading what we need to read, and things like that. At this time, we want to kind of go back and talk to you about some of the um, people we've had on our podcast, you've interviewed and their experiences and just really get your opinion about their experiences, what you're thinking, some of the folks that you've spoken to in your research and just kind of have a conversation about um, like if what we're hearing about is common and which we believe it is, but just kind of have that conversation. Sounds good, I'm ready. Okay, so like one of the things, a lot of times we talk about Actually, I think maybe it'd be good to, and I'm not sure if we're going to play this back to back, but I think it's really good that we talk about and define racial battle fatigue first, maybe just in case people only get this part of the episode. Um, so could you could define it for us quickly? Just tell us the same things that, or more, add on to it, what you told us last time about exactly what is racial battle fatigue. All right. So uh, I'll give it in kind of scientific definition, and then I'll break it down to the more kind of grassroots, uh, you know, elements of it. So racial battle fatigue is not a post-traumatic stress disorder uh, mm. because we do not live in a post-racist society. Mm. President Obama uh, did not usher in a post-racial or post-racist movement. So anything that happens to us is in the current and we bring on to that the historical trauma, all right? So what racial battle fatigue is, is a systemic, race-related, repetitive stress injury or stress syndrome, mm. okay? So what that means really is, um, and I don't know if I said this last time, but 
there was, uh, and, and I think Gerardo will um, like this, there was a hit by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five with uh, Melly Mel. And, you know, it said basically, don't push me because I'm close to, close the, edge, to the edge. Right? Yes. I'm about to lose my head, my head. right? Yes. Uh, uh, uh. So it's like a jungle. Sometimes you make me wonder if I, you know, so you you, you feel me? I think yes. we're on, we yes. on line now, yes. right? Yes. So what it means is that black, brown, and indigenous people are always so close to the edge that they feel like they're going to be pushed over the edge at any moment. And they're fighting for their lives in a way in which the body starts to code these environments in a very stressful and violent way. So the body codes racism, gendered racism as a violent act. Thus racism is violence. Mm. Mm. Yeah, wow. wow. So I mean, go, go ahead, ahead Okay, I, yeah. I was gonna say like, first of all, like all of that, yes, and you you talked about like the three different ways that racial battle fatigue shows up in the body. Um, can you talk to us about that too? Yeah, so basically, and these are the main ways it shows up. It shows up at a psychological level, a physiological level, and an emotional behavioral level. So some of those psychological things will be, um, you might have self-doubt, you might have uh, imposter syndrome, um, you might, um, and physiologically, you might have rashes, you might start to overeat, you might lose your appetite, um, headaches, in emotional behavioral ways, you might have John Henryism, imposter and all these different things. So it manifests itself because what happens is trauma is coded in the body. Just like racism is a violent act and the body codes that, so what it does is it stagnates our growth. It stagnates our progress because what happens is we're carrying that load, that traumatic load with us. Yep. And since we are dealing with a repetitive stress injury, we start to pick up more and more and more weight, right? And so again, one of the things that we know, and this is pretty relevant for say teachers, is that uh, black and brown and indigenous teachers especially is they are facing these kind of traumatic environments in the classroom, particularly when they are the only one in a historically and predominantly white space. Mm -hmm. And even if they're students, and when I say space, I mean the teacher, the other teachers and administrators might be white. The sure. kids might be black, brown, or indigenous. Yep, right? yep. And so if those kids are dealing with trauma, trauma, I'm sorry, trauma from their environment based on the um, white supremacy, guess what happens? There is a, a racial battle fatigue contagion yes. in that classroom. So those teachers are picking up that stress. So, you know, after having the 2020 and now 2021, most of us have become kind of um, epidemiologists uh, from this pandemic. We've heard words like R not. Yeah. R not is the transmission rate. Right. So if it's over one, which is is really something that we always try to get it uh, lower than, that means that if it's, say, a four, you can contaminate four other people. Mm -hmm. So guess what happens when that teacher is in front of that room with these traumatized students? Because when they walk to school, the police are looking at them as little miniature terrorists. Yes. Mm -hmm. right? And then they get into another classroom where the other teachers don't show love don't so joy, don't see you as a body that can inspire to do great things, don't see you as uh, a future heart surgeon, doesn't see you as a future lawyer, doesn't see you as a future dancer. So they put you in your place by racial microaggression. So these children are microaggressed. Now they're in your classroom and you feel that because we are a collective people. And now you have racial battle fatigue contagion because it now that R not is high. You got 20, 25, 30 students in the classroom. And it's one teacher. Sure. She's overburdened. 
because not only is she stressed because her babies are stressed in the classroom, but that white principal or that white teacher who doesn't understand, who does things like that, um, I think it was somewhere in the South where those teachers held up a noose and took a picture and the principal was the one who took the picture and they didn't, they didn't understand why, the four white folks didn't understand why that was wrong. Mm -hmm. They knew why it was wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's traumatizing to those black babies' mamas and, and fathers having their children there. And then it's traumatizing the children. And so if it's a lone black teacher or a lone brown teacher or a lone indigenous teacher in that classroom, she or he feels that too. And the other thing that happens with that is those teachers, even if they are black, brown, or indigenous in those spaces and as white students, and white uh, um, colleagues, they might experience that environment as bullying. And so what we know from the research is that right about, um, I think 1.59 times, um, they're more likely to have heart-related diseases. What that means basically, basically is that they have a 59% increase on the ability, or not really the ability, but the chances of having increased heart problems. They also are roughly about 1.46 times more likely to get type 2 diabetes. Mm. Say it differently, 46% of an increase towards diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Now, when we look at the black population in those studies, it's even higher. Now, what does that mean? Again, the body codes racial body fatigue. The body experiences it. And so those teachers start to say, my, I'm having heart problems. My, uh, I have rapid heart beating. I have a headache. Now I got type two diabetes. I don't know how I, well, we know it's genetic, but genetic because of the stress. Yep. So the environment becomes um, an environment that they really don't feel safe. And that's where the bullying comes from. So when you don't feel, when you feel fear, when you feel unsafe, when you feel uh, um, a lack of security, when you feel hostility and you feel something like, um, you know, just traumatic events, that's all coded as bullying. Sure. And so I think that's what the teachers that you might have um, spoken with uh, are going through. And many of the teachers that I've spoken with are dealing with. Yeah. No, we've, we've had, we've every, I think Asian, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think every teacher that we have interviewed or educator, I should say, has always talked about health issues and challenges emerging yeah. right yes and yes. then and then um the interesting part is those health issues are then held against them right and so it's like you have to take time off because you are going through you know these physical manifestations of white supremacy and racism and dealing with it every day um and and then it's being thrown back in your face right mm -hmm. as you try to take advantage of the of the time that you are allotted, right? right? And it's held against you. We've seen that happen over and over again. Right. And that's what um, Luke Wood and Frank Harris calls race lighting. Race lighting. So Tell us about it. So, you know, it's like gas lighting. Yes. But it's race lighting. And they say, they argue that race lighting also leads to racial battle fatigue. So you might say, well, look, this classroom, this school environment um, feels hostile to me. Mm -hmm. It doesn't like my presence. I'm experiencing these things as racial microaggressions. And then they say, oh, are you sure? It's, we all love each other around here. We all work um, together. We all respect each other. You sure it's, you're not just making this up? It's not just in your mind. Why don't you just focus on your pedagogy? Why don't mm -hmm. you strengthen your, do you need to go to a workshop? Mm. <laughs> the thing is, they're marginalizing your experience when you say this is my reality. And then sometimes 
part of the racial battle fatigue is that we start second guessing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's where sometimes that uh, imposter syndrome comes in like, well, is it me? Am, you know, because you oftentimes might be the only one. But if you're not the only one, then you might have other people who have different experiences that look like you or shared experiences. And even if they are shared or different, they still are coded as hostile. I mean, that I, it, it makes so much sense. You know, it, it's, it's, it's what we've heard and that idea of race lighting, like that, that's, that's something new that I'm learning about right now. But, but when you explain it, it makes sense. Right when you said it, I was like, oh, that is what they do, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, calm down. You right. know, and it's the same thing. Oh, you're, you're too sensitive. It's not really about that. Oh, and, and you said it's, it's about the pedagogy or if you did it this way or if you handled it this way or if you talked or acted this way, maybe it'd be different. Right. And it's all put on the uh, educators, black educators, uh, brown educators to kind of navigate their way through that and how that looks. Right. Um, so the other thing like that we've heard about like over and over is just like the constant having to fight. Right. Like just the, you know, and it's, it's, it, this isn't microaggression. It's just that every room that I enter into uh, my position is treated as less. I have to argue. I know that someone's going to, you know, you know, well, I don't think these kids, you know, are meant for these classes or, you know, they really just don't really want to do the work or care about it, you know, or care about education. And um, have you seen that as also a source of this racial battle fatigue? Just having to like constantly, uh, you know, fight the fight every day, every time you, any room you enter into, you like, and I've had these days where I'm like, okay, take a deep breath. Here we go. Got to, I know I'm going to have to say this at least three or four times in this meeting. Oh, that's, I mean, that's classic. I mean, it's a classic example because once again, you're being made to be put on the defensive. And so they'll say something like, um, well, if you weren't looking for racism, there wouldn't be any. Just Sure. If, you know, so it's, it's all about you again. So they're trying to turn the tables away from the systemic structure. That's why I say it's a systemic, race-related, repetitive stress injury. It's systemic. All those words mean something. So the system is really what we're fighting. And it's those people in the system that reinforce it. And um, they basically give fuel to the system to keep operating throughout you know, our lives. So, and we keep having to fight an unjust system. And again, it's one that really wasn't made for our presence. And then the education is wrong. So now you have to look at how students are being taught. And as Carter G. Woodson said, the miseducation of the Negro. And what I would do is expand that in the words of like Eduardo Bonilla Silva Mm -hmm. to say this kind of collective blackness. So dark-skinned Puerto Ricans, dark-skinned Mexican, you know, uh, all these folks um, who are part of this kind of collective um, bottom caste community. Yes. And so you're starting to say, wait, wait, this, this is just reinforcing whiteness. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and they try to argue, so that's where the race lighting coming. You know, this, this is just America. This is just human. We're all appreciating contributions. Then you say, well, the contributions of indigenous is missing. The contributions of Chicanos is missing. The contributions of black women are missing. Well, you know, but it's such a larger piece. So now you're on the defensive. And anytime that you have to um, always be on the defensive, you never get rest. You know, I don't know who your favorite football team is. Is it if it's the Denver Broncos or, you know, since y'all in college. That's who I represent. That's who I represent. <laughs> well, if, if your defense was on the field for over 150 plays, that's a bad um, uh, defense. That's right. And so what happens, uh, they get tired, mm-hmm. right? And then the offense continues to run over them, right? Yep. So 
the best defense is one that doesn't stay on the field long. And that's right. It can put the offense on the field. When have we been able to be on the offensive side? And see, that's what Dr. Chester Pierce talked about uh, when he said uh, offensive mechanisms. And I, I recategorized it to say offensive racist mechanisms. But these offensive racist mechanisms are the things that keep us on the defense, keep us in our place. And that's where racial microaggressions comes out of. So we're always being um, um, defensive, defending our bodies, defending our minds. And that's the part of it that gets tiring. So can I ask a question then? Just thinking about like, I, oh, first of all, go ahead. Oh, well, I would just go ahead, Asia, ask your question. But I'm gonna come back to this. Uh, so I don't know anything about football, please know. But it, what I'm <laughs> what I want to say is, you talked about like this, like being on the field for like 150 plays, and this makes me think about this idea of black educators, like leaving the field and passing that baton on. Because last night we had on Dr. Um, Darlene Sampson, and she talked about when black educators are exhausted, it is okay for us to like walk, basically walk off the field. Mm -hmm. Right. And that lets someone else, another black educator, hopefully, but someone else to take on that work because we just can't keep like burning ourselves up. So right. would you say that that's the kind of thing that you would maybe suggest to educators? And I, I know that a lot of us talk about like not wanting to leave our children and like being the only person of color, black person specifically in a space. Would you say like it? Yeah, like let's try not to burn ourselves up in the name of all of our students, and then we end up getting, you know, basically like blowing away in the wind, and sacrificing ourselves. Now, there's there's two ways to answer that, and one is a, from a more radical tradition. It's a more liberatory liberatory um, tradition. So, which one do you want me to give you? The, you know, the one that's kind of where everybody will you know, accept and understand, or you want to go in a radical. Place. You already know. Well, you, you know, already... <laughs> you know, you know. Well, yeah, let, it's let radical. Give you, I'll give you a little bit of both. One All right. is we, we can't walk away. All right. And that's the hard things, but then we get burnt out and mm -hmm. we start carrying on that, uh, that allostatic load is off balance. So now uh, our cortisol levels are increased, uh, uh, we have telomeric decay, uh, so it hurts us. But one of the things we do is we can't leave our babies, right? Mm -hmm. And because what happens to our babies? Um, so the thing about walking away is it's just like if you own a house. If you so-called live in a decent area, the longer you live in that house, your house gets equity, mm -hmm. right? And equity is essentially power. So when you have a black or brown or indigenous teacher, the longer they stay, the more equity they should build, mm -hmm. the more expertise they should have, and, and the more influence and maybe some more of the favors, like Don Corleone said, I might have to come and ask you something, hopefully not, yeah. for one day. You might have to repay. That is what equity gets you, right? But if you move away, you never build equity. Mm -hmm. So you lose power, all right? Now, here's the other thing. Why can't the equity be in our own community? That's right. So what, why can't we have black independent schools like we used to have? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The work of Vanessa Siddle Walker, a great historian, you know, past AERA president. Yeah. Um, and look at those schools that she talked about. Yes. Right? I have her book up here on my bookshelf somewhere. Yeah. Um, read the great work of, um, he was on my dissertation committee, Dr. Um, James D. Anderson, The Education of Blacks in the South, 1860 to 1935. So we can do it. Now we knew there was threats then. And a lot of those things got... Um, white supremacy came in and they burned it down and lynched people. But yep. We're in a new era. White supremacy is still alive, 
but we got to teach our babies because our babies' souls are dying, soul injuries. That's one of the things that the native people call uh, uh, soul wounds. Yes. Right? Um, and they have um, a book. One brother has a book at Waddle. Um, it's called Healing the Soul Wound. Healing the Soul Wound. Trauma-Informed Counseling for Indigenous Communities. Eduardo Duran. So um, we need to be able to understand the, the soul wounds that these children are having in these schools, right? And, and that they're being injured. So indigenous kids are being injured. Black kids are being injured. Brown kids are being injured. And they would be less likely to be injured if they were in loving hands and loving arms with teachers that look like them who are in control of their community with or their school within their own community. Very, I mean, I love this idea, you know, of black independent schools. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Bell Hooks. We're big fans of Bell Hooks. And, and, and teaching to transgress, she talks about the greatest education I've ever had was in my all black school. My mm -hmm. segregated school, she's like, we didn't have much but we knew we were driven by a mission and, and, and that mission was guided by love. And it was people who knew us, who cared about us. They knew us out a messianic zeal. Yes. Uh, that knew us, they knew us in and outside. They knew us at church. They knew our aunts and knew our uncles. They knew everybody. Right. Um, but, but um, so like I, that just, that just hits, that just hits right. But I want to go back to this idea where you talked about uh, offensive racial mechanisms. And one of the things that like has also been mentioned by teachers are like uh, evaluations, mm -hmm. evaluations and uh, school ratings. And I have come to the opinion, like all evaluation systems, um, I believe they are skewed towards whiteness. And so they're always going to prefer whiteness in the way that that expressed in whatever. And so I almost feel like it's just another tool of white supremacy to mm -hmm. come through and say, you're not good enough. You're not qualified. You still got to do it better, even if you were doing it, you know, the best. And oftentimes it's people who aren't, who don't look like us, who are evaluating us and deciding, mm -hmm. you know, are we doing a good job or are we not doing a good job? But have you seen also like that role of the evaluation and what are your thoughts about things like school rating systems, especially um, in our city, they're used to uh, shut down schools in our state, right? And then uh, reopen them. And usually uh, with what we call plans of innovation and usually nine times out of 10, what I've found is the plans of innovation in black schools tend to be stricter, more rigorous, yep. takes away joy, yep. takes away freedom, opportunity, like the ability to talk, right? And, and, and express yourself always. And, and we've talked to other people in New York and they have debates about school uniforms, but that always is like part of the process. Um, but what are your thoughts about like all of those kind of uh, tools that are used to kind of reinforce white supremacy, uh, run black teachers out. Um, and, and really, you know, um, I guess shut down black schools. Mm -hmm. Oh no, I, I think they're, they're tools to um, really raise the status of those who are more likely to benefit from whiteness and then keep the other groups in their position. Right, so we have to use our own tools. We know um, what's good. We know how to see and seek out brilliance. We know how to create brilliance. And so that's why it would benefit us more in black independent schools, but we have to believe in ourselves. Hmm. See, I, I come from uh, a mother who was a teacher. Yes. In an all black school. Yes. I went to all black schools until high school. Yes. So I saw bright, black brilliance yep. and I saw black struggle. Yep. But I saw the whole continuum. And that's see, that's the beauty of like a school like uh, Spelman and Morehouse. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. You can see the whole continuum instead of just one side. 
And that's just the deficiencies or the deficits. And then those deficits become the part of the culture of the race as an identity, because people say that blacks can't achieve. But if you go to Spelman, you go to Morehouse, you see success, right? And that's how it was in my school. I saw um, brilliance in the teachers. And the thing that was really most effective uh, for us, because you know, sometimes boys get, black boys get a little rambunctious. Yes. It just, it, it benefited me in Chicago when the, uh, there, there was an offshoot football league. And I think the team was called the Chicago Fire. And then it went defunct um, after a couple of years, uh, that league. So we had this influx of big old strong black men who were substitute teachers and regular teachers coming to the classroom. The black teachers was all excited because they're like, I'm gonna send you down to Mr. Holmes. And his name was Larry Holmes. Yes. I'm gonna send you down yes. to Mr. Holmes. And see, back then they was paddling. I think most of them was cues or something. Yes. Because they yep. were swinging yes. that word, yes. you oh. know. But uh, I was, but they had these muscles and, and, and they didn't play, right? Yes. And, but they could teach too. That's right. So the thing was, they commanded respect. They didn't yes. demand it, they commanded respect. And so that changed the whole culture of the school. And, and so that benefited me um, a lot. But here's the other thing. Uh, some colleagues of mine and I, we did a, a study using national data. Mm -hmm. And what we did was it was looking at some of the, uh, from K through I think sixth grade. and some of these assessment tests like with math. And here's what we found in the data. The blacker the school got, the better the math scores were. Huh. Not only for black students, but brown students and the few white students that was in it. When it was fewer um, black students in a predominantly white school, the black students did poor and the brown students did poor. Asians pretty much was not affected no matter what the school looked like, you know, in this national data. Yeah. But the scores for black and brown children went up as the school became black at every grade level. Mm. So the thing was they um, passed over the white norm when it was an all white school. Right, wow. so that's math. Those are and, and they, everybody in the country were taking. That's right. Right, that's so right. you can't say you know, uh, you know, y'all just created some kind of new math test <laughs> for black kids. Yeah. So what does that mean? That means that those black children were having a different experience when the school was predominantly white. Those brown children were having a different and potentially more hostile experience the wider the school was. But the black, and remember the last time we talked about a different data set on black children. Yes. Black mm -hmm. teachers. Yes. Mm -hmm. teachers, the white, black, and black, uh, um, and brown, white, right, effect. Yeah. This, this is a study that we did, and we showed empirically that um, Black students can achieve. So that means that it's not just about the numbers uh, in the classroom, but who's in front of them. That's right. Interesting. And that's, that's a quantitative right. study, big data. I mean, that's that's why we have to deal with this. If if unless unless we and I and I and I support, I'm saying let's let's build the black independent school network across yeah. America. I'm, I'm down, I'm down to start working on it, trying to plan it, put it together. Uh, um, we'll see if they let us have it. We get this, all this uh, charters, start a new charter. That's what I always have said with these charters. I was like, let, let, the, let the mosque wanna open up a charter. Let, the, let them wanna open up their own yeah. religious charter and see what they, what they let them do, right? Mm -hmm. It, you can, um, there's a few schools in Chicago. Matter of fact, there's an all boys school in Chicago, black boys school, where they have some like 90 something percent who go on to um, college. 
I've read about it. Right. And then we had the sister um Marva Collins years ago, who had uh, uh independent black school and they and they um, just excelled. So we can do it. We just have to believe in ourselves and we have to stop being scared of white people. Mm, that's and right. White and white approval. That's right. right? That's and, right. And then the other thing, what happens is one of the things that has been shown to mitigate the stress and the racial battle fatigue that we experience is falling back on our African self-consciousness, like Joseph Baldwin said. Uh -huh. So one of the things that um, Chicanas, Chicanos, Chicanex, Puerto Ricans, Afro-Puerto Ricans, even indigenous people, um, one of the ways in which they lower their um, stress load from racism is the cultural practices that they perform. That's and right. the rituals That's that right. they perform. Right now, I mean, we can talk about that Spanish stuff. That's a colonizer's language, but uh, I'm supposed to be uh, sitting here in Aslan, the capital yes. of Aslan. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but what does that mean? And they weren't speaking Spanish. Right. All right. So, so, but we went through that process too, and then um, we started um, looking at Swahili and. Uh, speaking and, and then Kwanzaa and naming our children more uh, really Afrocentric or mm -hmm. really true African-American names. Yep, yep, right? yep, yep. Right? So uh, I, I, my point is this, that we have to start looking at those rituals and those um, cult, deep cultural traditions and love those and embrace it and don't be ashamed of it. Yes, we can start to reduce our stress load, and it and I'm I'm talking about things like our artistic expression, right? I'm talking about dancing. That's right. Yeah. That's all right. You, all you got to do, I could go right out here, and there's some Navajos who will do a certain kind of dance culturally specific that brings community together and builds strength, and that's what I tapped on the last time when I talked about that body of Christ thing coming mm -hmm. together and the body of Haru mm -hmm. uh, and Kemet coming together, the pieces, the pieces coming together means power, unity, collective uh, responsibility. I mean, that's it, a Asia. That's what we gotta do. We gotta, we gotta come together. Like yeah. Dr. William Smith is saying, and this is what I always think about is, you know, I'm, things fall apart. Chinua Bebe is that story, right? Of losing it. It's the African perspective, but it's like losing what holds your community together. And and we were robbed of it, you know, and 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 we were sold, you know, or 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 brainwashed to think that there was something bad about it. Right. That yeah. there was something that was negative that we had to distance ourselves away from or put away, you know, or be ashamed of. And 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 part of that is Christianity. And, yeah. and we, we know Christianity in some ways has been great for black people. In some ways in this it country, has Christianity not. has been like the most harmful thing for black yeah. people. Yeah. But, but, but we do have to reconnect and, and, and that idea of just celebrating, connecting back to the earth. Asia, you're big on this. Asia, Asia is a big camper, spending time outdoors. And I always say, you know, people are like, black people don't camp. And I was like, <laughs> What are you talking about? Yeah. We, 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 we love being outside. Yeah. You, know, you go barbecuing. You go anywhere in the world. Black folks is outside everywhere yeah. in this country. They ain't in the house. They, outside. they said that um, the porch, front porch, was invented by a black man um, who was an architect or you know, huh. early stages architect. So why do black people always sit out on the porch? You go through black communities, they're always out there. That's what's happening. Right? On the front porch, right? Waving and, you know. Talking <laughs> and you're building, like you said, building, building community. community. Building yes. community. Right. And so we have to go back to what we lost. I don't know if you all uh, are familiar with the book Yurugu. 
Mm-mm. Oh my gosh. Y-U-R-U-G-U. And Urugu um, was written by Marimba Ani. And in that, she talks about the great Ma'afa. And the great Ma'afa is the disruption of the African body from the um, translated Atlantic slave trade. So she doesn't use um, Holocaust because that basically explains somebody else's tradition. Yes. But she yes. uses uh, the Asili uh, and the Ma'afa and Urugu. Now that's a book, it's, it's real deep. So that's that's a book club reading. Okay, you have all to, right. You're gonna have to read it together. I don't know what this means, let's break it down, right? But it's worth getting through to try to understand what we've been through. So Urugu is an excellent book. Now you all mentioned Bell Hooks. Um, now Bell Hooks ain't got nothing on my sister. Um, can we just stop and take a like a a, a a praise praise report on this library of books is in your mind and this stack of books behind you? That's what's up. That's I just want to see this. Yeah, see. I just want to see the library of books. You can see my show. Uh, this is just the home thing, but uh, let's just see. Oh, there it is. Look there it at is. that. There it is, folks. You are missing out. <laughs> nice. So, uh, but. I don't know if you, do you know Clenora uh, Hudson Weems? Uh -uh. Have you heard of um, Africana womanism? No. No. Look here. Look here, if you ain't heard of Africana <laughs> womanism, this is a researcher. She used citations. There we go. Look here. Bell Hooks can't hold nothing on this sister. Okay. Uh-oh. Uh -oh. If you ain't read this, once you read this sister, you'd be like, well, why has she been missing in my life? Gerardo, Gerardo says he's heard of her. Yeah. So this sister will make you start to look at some of the contradictions of the academy. Yes. Right? Yes. So she believes in, in the African family, the African you in African unity. Right. And and this is not a um a new book. I remember when she first um published it. I was sitting at um, the table next to us, and look, I'm on an autograph copy. Uh -huh. <laughs> back in the 80s. Yeah. So, um, read Africana Womanism Reclaiming Ourselves by Clenora Hudson Weems. Mm. And All your right. life will be changed. And you'll be like, let me put some of these other people who really I thought was important and put Queen Clenora. Up, where she up there, right, right where she belongs, and I see it right here on Google Play, people. Ebook, y'all oh, can good. get it. You will buy it as a gift. Yeah. So let's go, let's go. Yeah, sister's strong. Just, she's, she's strong. Can I, can I, kind of thinking about this idea of like reclaiming ourselves, and like you talked about this idea of like black folks, black educators having fear. One of the things that I hear commonly when people talk to us on the podcast or talk to me and Kevin, you may have this experience too, is that people, they fear losing Hera, which is our retirement system here. Yes, yes. Like if I leave teaching, I won't have my retirement. I won't have my para. Yes. Right. And so like, I get really, like I, I understand people's concerns about retirement, but I've tried so hard to understand, especially if folks are 20 years out, 10 years <laughs> yes, out. Yes, yes, yes. Like how much, how much, and, and, and Gerardo's in the background saying, me though, it's him. He's like, I got eight years. He's like, I'm counting right. down. But like how much. He, he too are young. We, he yeah. too young to talk about eight years. Yeah. <laughs> like how do we exchange, like how do we justify maybe it's not a question to you but like put out into the atmosphere like how do we justify killing ourselves slowly knowing that we can um end up with diabetes knowing that we can have heart disease knowing that we are having strokes and 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 and, and justifying our mind exchanging our livelihood for our retirement system right right i mean it's it's a it's a realistic fear Right? Yeah, because sure, sure. Black people have, brown people have um, 
wanted to get to a point where they didn't have to stress. I mean, that's the dream of everybody that when I retire, I'm not gonna be as strong, as healthy, as mobile as I used to be. And I don't wanna be a dependent of the state or to um, have to have someone else take care of me. So it, it's a real fear, of, especially the older population of, uh, demographic of people because they gone through depressions, but now we've gone through uh, 2008, now we've gone through a pandemic. Yeah. So more people who are growing up now who are behind you all will start thinking about this, especially those who are in high school and uh, junior high are gonna be like, I need safety. That's what happens when you go through traumatic events like depressions. Mm. Uh, and then remember when, when white folks catch a cold, we have the flu. Yep. Right. So it hits us much more. Um, so I don't fault them. I understand them. But if we had the black independent schools, if we had the courage to say somebody put together a strong business plan, they set up the school, we it's going to work, and we don't believe that white ice is colder than black ice, then we might be able to feel good about showing up, right? But don't start thinking like, I mean, schools here, even teachers be buying supplies out of their own pockets. That's right. But if I do it in the black school, that you're going to be complaining, right? But you were doing it over there in the white yep, school. Yep, that's right. So we have to believe in ourselves. But remember, that fear of a lost job and then the abuse that they feel in that system is part of the bullying atmosphere. Sure. And so that becomes a threat. And sometimes as Dr. King said, um, we become not only complicit, but um, he, he said it in a way like, um, we start to become acquiescent, mm. right? So we acquiesce to oppression. He called it a state of acquiescence. Hmm. I, that I mean, it's it's just it it it's it's powerful. It's 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 what happens though. I, I think that's 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 the balance, right? Is how do we make sure that we continue to fight this? And I think the the sphere of education has been so critical for Black people's liberation in this country that like we have to to understand why black teachers are leaving right mm -hmm. or why why they acquiesce right because that's the other side i'm going to give in i'm not going to fight anymore i'm not going to resist and i'm just going to let it be and and maybe i feel a little bit better maybe my conscience hurts right because i feel like i turned my back on folks right or or i'm out i'm out um or i'm sticking with it and i'm going through it um, or, or I find a balance. I find a way to ground and center myself, mm -hmm. which I, th I think is ideal. So one thing that I always think about, and I think we are, uh, we're getting close on an hour on this episode, but Dr. Smith, as, as a teacher and as somebody who works with young people with the ultimate goal of loving to see more people who look like me go into education and, 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 see education as a career. All too often, I see kids who've gone through this system, like you said, and experienced this trauma. And, and it makes sense why you wouldn't want to ever step back into school once you actually get out of a school, right? But how do we talk to young people and prepare them, especially young teachers of color? I've um, had te worked with teacher candidates in my classroom, uh, teacher candidates of color, and, and, and um, I've seen some of them really thrive. I've seen some of them leave, you know, after amount of time. But how do we talk to them and, and really let them know what it's going to be like and how to best prepare for a career in education? Good question, Kevin. You know, that's also a hard one because unfortunately, um, there is no financial incentive <laughs> <to be a laughs> teacher. 
It's like a moral obligation, which is pathetic, right? That yes. you have to tap into my morality and my concern uh, and not pay me what I'm worth right? to, to build the future generation. And then we miseducate people. That's right. Because think about all these people out here killing us. Uh, what's his name? Derek Chauvin. He had a bachelor's degree. He was, had a teacher. That's so right. Uh, so teaching, schooling is complicit in white supremacy, right? So it's a real hard sell. But if you can be a model, if you can find a way in which you can create a paradise within your classroom where you can use different structures, challenge the orthodoxy to... Um, you know, schooling folks. And remember, there's another book called, written by Mwalimu Suja called uh, Too Much uh, Schooling, Too Little Education. Yes. Too Much Schooling, Too Little Education. So we're schooling these children. We're not educating them, right? We have to be educators, not schoolers, not putting them in a system that's going to put them to... Uh, participate in the prison industrial complex or not be able to be effective uh, working citizens. We have to educate, educate one of the root, one, the root word of educate is to enlighten, to, to bring out. Yes. Right? So we have to be able like that light behind a Asia to, to shine bright. Right. There's an old passage, um, I think, in the Old Testament that talks about you went and light candles and put a, a, a bushel over it. Right. Yes. So those children are like lit candles, but you're putting a, a bushel. You're putting them in a box. So the, eventually the light goes out. It's out. Sure. Sure. Right. Because you, you're taking away the oxygen. And so that's what happens with our, our children is that. They can't see a future. So remember I said about those big football player, ex-football players that came to my school? Yes, yes. They shined a light. But my mother was a teacher. So the light was already yep, being yep, lit. Yep, yep, and, yep. And this is her 81st birthday. So I'm celebrating it with, with you all. Blessings, all right. blessings, blessings. Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy mom. Happy birthday, moms. So um, we have to be the model that we want others to see and be inspired by. And that's gonna be the children in the classroom because they're gonna say, you know, Miss Lyons, Mr. Adams, Mr. Munoz, those are powerful people. And it might not be a former classroom. You might be a coach. You might be at the Boys and Girls Club. You might be with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, but those are educators. Mm -hmm. Education doesn't just happen in a classroom. That's very true. Mm. <laughs> As you know what they call that? Just let it marinate. Just let it marinate. Exactly. Like 40 Water says. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm I'm a definitely reiterate a couple of important people: Joseph Baldwin, African self consciousness, and Naeem Akbar, um, the mental disorders of blacks. And part of the problem, as Akbar talks about, is that we oftentimes suffer from the alien self disorder, the anti self disorder or the self-destructive disorder. And so in order to not participate in that kind of self-destruction, we have to reignite the African self-consciousness. So read Baldwin's work um, and get inspiration from that. And then read the work of A. Wade Boykin he was a psychologist at Howard University. And he talks about ways in which we can teach 
um, effectively the black and brown children, right? So we have to look at what comes out of our community and says, this is the way we teach. This is the way we learn. This is what's most effective and not use a European paradigm that empowers them. It's just like, um, I think we talked about a little bit earlier, um, assessment. Yes. And um, I don't know if last time in part one, we talked about Carl Campbell um, Bingham. We might not have. We, I don't think we did. Maybe we did, but he, he was the one that did the Army Alpha Beta test way back when. But he's also the so-called father of the SAT. Yes. And, and he's the one that um, created the SAT and it was supposed to really have a racial hierarchy to it and a certain um, um, ethnic kind of strata in it, white ethnic strata in it. So the so-called Caucasian was supposed to be at the top and the Jews were at the bottom of the um, strata. And then you had the racialized people. And so the test when he first did it, white women actually did better than white men. So they had to recalculate it so that the white men did better. <laughs> they were like, oh no. Right. And then decades, <laughs> decades later, there was a, a test. I'm not going to say pronounce the word, but it was called the BITCH test, the Black Intelligence Test of Cultural Homogeneity. Um, so you can, <laughs> I know, I know. I know. <laughs> Asia, oh. the, the look on Asia's face. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, All right. But they were being, this is in the 70s. So, that, you know, they, <laughs> these were some Black uh, psychologists saying, look, we're going to get you. We're going to get right? you. And so they ask you culturally appropriate questions. Yes. If you were able to ask those, answer those questions, you were connected to your culture. So what they basically were saying is those AT, ACT tests, those SAT tests, those intelligence tests were culturally specific for a certain group of people. That's right. They give you this test and you perform well, you just as brilliant as somebody that comes out of your test. I love that. So at the end of the day, what they're trying to say is we have to be culturally appropriate for the people who we're teaching. And that is where we'll see brilliance. That makes sense. That makes sense. Don't force someone to play on a field they, they never played on and, right. and don't know don't know the game. Or interested Let them play the game they the game. know. Exactly, that they care to play. Right. That's right. That's right. Well, yeah, Dr. Smith, you've given us books. I got books. My wife's going to be mad. She'll be like, what, what is all this Amazon? What, what? Actually, I can't use Amazon no more. So I got to, I got to, I got to go look out and find some, some other spots. What'd uh -huh. you say, Asia? Thrift books. Thrift books. I got to, but see, it's hard, but I, I'll get out there. We're going to do it right. But we're going to get these new books. And uh, we we have just, I mean, we could sit and talk to you, I think, for another hour, yeah. hours on end. I think we would definitely be checking back in with you as yep. the exit interview uh, continues um, and and just appreciate your time and, and just all of the wisdom and knowledge and, and just, um, you know, as someone who teeters, right? And, and I'm, I'm, this is my year 15 and I teeter on it. You know, listening to these exit interview stories, sometimes I'm like, maybe, maybe I should leave, but you you just left me feeling like, nah, keep going, mm -hmm. center myself in my African consciousness, right? Reaffirm that African consciousness, mm -hmm. connect with those traditions that are there, uh, that, that are dormant in my DNA. Mm -hmm. Right. And, 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 and that's going to help us, which right. I think is really powerful and important. Right. right. Regardless of if we stay or leave, I, we got to do it either way. As long as you either work way. for your people, you got to work for your people. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, go ahead, well, Asia, bring us home. Well, this has been another wonderful episode of the exit interview. Once again, thank you so much, Dr. Smith for being with us uh, and, and coming back and 
is filling us in with again more books more knowledge and audience uh tune in we'll have that to back you all have a good night and we'll see you on the next episode